You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome and welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement as the turtles got back in the 80s, as Jerry likes to put it. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your appetite to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Mark, where we had a sneak preview into a study that he has done along with uh, the Kaya Association about what investors look at the most when selecting managers, which is a super interesting topic with some surprising findings in some of the cases. So if you missed that one, you really should go back and listen to it. Rich, great to be with you this week. How are things where you are down under? It's getting a bit warmer, Neil. So um, we've, we've gone through our winter and now we're sort of into spring and it's starting to heat up over here. So I'm in my uh, my T-shirt and um, fancy free. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great to hear. Hopefully we're not entering a, a trend following winter now that uh, spring is coming to where you are. We've got some great topics that you brought along. So uh, I'm excited to get into that. Before I do the market wrap, let me just, uh, as I normally do, just uh, give a big shout out to those of you who left a rating and review this week. You know, we appreciate this. And also just maybe remind everyone that last week I um, did ask that if you would help the podcast grow, then you could do that by sharing a link that I created called toptradersonplot.com forward slash share. If you would be so kind to share that with three like-minded friends or colleagues, that would be fantastic. And this is certainly a way to show your appreciation for the time we put in bringing you this content for free every week. And it was kind of a roller coaster week in many uh, markets this week. And depending on whether you got stopped out of your positions on Monday or you were able to hold on to them, that pretty much determined if you had a bad week or an okay week. And although Chairman Powell and the Open Market Committee failed to signal a start uh, to tapering, then at least it got a little bit closer to doing so. Powell described current economic conditions as having mostly met the committee standard to begin to taper and suggested that an announcement would be made at the November meeting. Bond investors didn't like the news and drove the yields on the 10-year note about 15 basis points higher to end the week at 1.45%. It was also announced that the reverse repo, also known as the RRP operation designed to sob up excess front-end liquidity will be doubled to 80 billion per counterparty or from 80 billion per counterparty to 160 billion. Now that totals over 12 trillion dollars if every counterparty maxed out this operation. The size of outstanding RRP as of yesterday was about 1.3 trillion, a record for the program. This is uh, expected that this number will grow going into next week's quarter end and will continue to grow throughout the end of this year. Next week, of course, we have more economic data. So investors will be uh, focused on the Congress um, putting together maybe an infrastructure spending plan and uh, 
debt ceiling, if they can agree. And over here in Europe, of course, the German election that takes place Sunday will surely set the tone for the markets should it yield any surprises. Let me just bring you in, Rich, at this point, just to touch on things that may have caught your attention since we last spoke from a kind of a high-level point of view, whether it may be markets, performance, anything like that? Well, I, I found that my my battleship took a hit um, this, this week, or particularly starting on Friday with the, the downturn in the equity indices. So, um, you know, I, I was saying on Twitter how, um, unfortunately, profit-taking in our world of trend-following is quite a sad affair because that's the time we've got to say goodbye to some of these great trends we've been riding and I certainly said goodbye to quite a number of my uh, my um, systems in uh, in my um, the Nasdaq and in the S and P five hundred and in the DAX. Um, you know, whereas I, you know I, I was previously writing about seven different systems in those equity indices, um, I was brutally attacked um, with um, profit taking, where um, my my trailing stops were triggered, and uh, I was left with about two systems in each of those indices left straggling. So. Then there was the inevitable dead cat bounce, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wishing to myself, I wish I had those additional systems now, but uh, I suppose that's just the price of trend following. But apart from that, my Aussie dollar seems to be doing okay, but really there's not much else on my uh, in my universe which is, is giving me much joy this week. So it's a, it's a depressing week for Richard Brennan's battleship. Well... It it might be, but on the other hand, your battleship now have a few nuclear-driven submarines, <laughs> apparently, to protect it, much to the upset of the French, of course. But there we are. I don't think you're alone in having been uh, bruised this week. But before we get to that, from our side, the done side, it actually was a positive week for our trend-following strategies. The week did start out with trend corrections in all but three of the uh, positions we were holding on to. And uh, that's quite rare to see in such a diversified portfolio. Later in the week, I mean, all the trends resumed, so to speak. And we also saw days where pretty much all current positions contributed positively. So quite interesting to watch that. But as I mentioned, the week finished on a high note with the energy sector in particular making a strong contribution. Also, as mentioned, bonds also started to... uh, sell off this week and despite the upwards move in bond prices for the last five six months our longer term models have actually kept some short exposure that we could finally capitalize on this week stock markets were mixed as were currencies but elsewhere in the portfolio commodities did generally well this week my trend barometer started to move higher towards the end of the week confirming the resumption of some of these trends at least for now looking at the volatility space We did have another dip and another buying opportunity where the drop in the S&P 500 of 2.9% at the low uh, on Monday sent the VIX index spiking up, I think, all the way up to 28.8 or thereabouts, which was an eight-point increase. And then the VVIX, uh, so the VIX of the VIX, joined in, and that also rallied and briefly exceeded 140, which is the 98th percentile in the last six years. Now, the VIX index did decline from its peak of around 24.75 at 4 p.m. on Monday to finish the week at 17.84 at 4 p.m. Friday. So significantly lower than its Monday peak value and also substantially lower than last Friday's close. 
The rally on Thursday brought the uh, S&P 500 back to within 2% of its all-time high. Even though interest rates uh, increased significantly after the Fed's announcement of the likely tapering later this year, a rather surprising turn of events as one would have expected perhaps that equities would be less cheerful about that news. On our side, our volatility strategy had a pretty eventful week, uh, to be frank, and was again similar to what we saw in July, trying to benefit from increase in volatility, certainly in the beginning of the the week. But as the bulls came back in force, the strategy did suffer from the sharp drop in, in the VIX and had a small loss at the end of the week of about 80 basis points, so nothing too dramatic. But more dramatically, uh, <laughs> probably like your battleship, my own trend-following portfolio being much shorter term in nature than what we do at Don, had a pretty rough week, another down week. It's down 6.18% for the month, still up a little bit for the year, 3.1%. All groups were down and are down so far this month, uh, down 2.72% for Group 1, which is classical trend. Group 2 down 1.34%, and Group 3, the fast reacting, also being whipped around, down 2.13%. So all model groups down right now for the month. In terms of sectors, top three are energies, base metals, and, and precious metals, and the worst sectors really is equities, and that's pretty much where all of the losses occur so far this month but then also a little bit of uh, losses in bonds and in short-term interest rates. If we go further down into the single markets, three top markets so far is uh, aluminum, uh, gas oil, and nat gas. And at the bottom of uh, the chart, we find so far this month, not surprising, three equities, NASDAQ, DAX, and the SPY, Australian SPY. In terms of trading this week, <laughs> well, Monday, when all the markets sold off, the model got stopped out of a lot of its long position in equities, just like you, Rich, and also got long the German Bund for one of the fast-reacting models. Uh, clearly, that turned out not to be great later in the week. Tuesday was quiet, but it gets it did get stopped out of one of its long net gas positions. Wednesday, it had a short signal in the euro, i.e. the currency, and on Thursday, it had to um, reverse its long bun position for a full loss as well as re-entering some long Brent positions. And Friday was mostly about getting out of some long positions in the short-term interest rates in the US, uh, what's also known as the Euro-Dollar contract. So a little bit bruised this week, I have to say. Uh, the risk to stop is around 10.54%, which is up about uh, 2% from last week. But um, yeah, it certainly has been a whip-soaring week. And I think, in a sense, this helps us better understand, maybe from a practical point of view, what differences it can make in terms of time frame, right? Because longer-term models probably didn't have too much going on this week, frankly, because it was uh, a one-day sharp counter-move uh, in, in longer-term trends. But uh, all of those people who have shorter term models um, or me even medium term models or with just using tighter stops they certainly saw a little bit of a a challenging week now rich before we jump into our discussion today I should say by the way there were no questions um so we can jump into uh, our uh, topics today but before we do so I wanted to touch on last week's conversation with Mark. Knowing what investors look for in a manager is, of course, critically important for those of us who work in the industry. But I also think it's really helpful for those who just want to trade their own money, since 
it can highlight some of the risks that you need to be aware of. Um, so let me ask you, what were some of your takeaways from the research study and uh, how does it jive with your own um, experience? Look, it was a very interesting discussion you had with Mark. Uh, as far as how it affects um, a trader such as myself who isn't sort of seeking um, AUM from other investors, it's it's not really an issue. But I think the issue that was being discussed with Mark and yourself more relates to how you attract investors or allocators to consider increasing their allocations towards trend following. So I was particularly interested in Mark's um, research where, as opposed to how a trader would normally see it in, in assuming that uh, the investment performance would be the prime consideration, Mark highlighted, well, actually, um, there is also the business and operational risk associated with a firm which almost has a power of veto over the decision-making process. In other words, if you don't cut the mustard in relation to um, your business and operational risk aspects of the, the due diligence they undertake, then um, that excludes you irrespective of your performance. So that was interesting to me. But what I'm particularly excited about is uh, what Mark has, um, has, uh, is doing in relation to this new research, which is shortly going to be coming out in relation to a useful narrative to attract investment allocations uh, towards trend following, particularly for allocators and investors. So in relation to what Mark was, uh, was saying with you um, on that last podcast, I, I've got a real issue with this language barrier because I believe that with our particular trend following approach, it's very counterintuitive to alternative approaches. In fact, we are specialising in targeting aspects of uncertainty, whereas nearly all other investment models are targeting aspects of certainty. And because of that, um, that key difference uh, in our approach, our language needs to be different to what alternative methods are. Because if we start umbrellaing ourselves under the, using the same language as is applied by these alternative trading models, which don't target divergence, and more concentrate on convergent methodologies, then we run the risk of not only not meeting the standards required of those alternative standard measures, but also potentially influencing um, our own philosophy to water down its ability to target this uncertainty that exists in these environments. So if we, for instance, adopted the conventional lexicon of talking in terms of standard deviation, talking in terms of sharp ratio, talking in terms of single point statistics. Um, unfortunately, we fail almost at every level when we are comparing ourselves to um, predictive or convergent methodologies that have high sharps, high win rates, um, you know, um, these, these wonderful um, single point statistics, uh, which are indicators of their performance. But that doesn't mean that uh, we can't deliver these spectacular long-term performance returns. So that means that our language needs to be different to be able to convey what it is that we are delivering that is different to what these alternative methods that adopt this traditional jargon is like. And what was interesting in this discussion, I found, was that I've, I've recently read a fantastic book called uh, Complexity Science. It's, it's uh, by an author by the name of Mitchell Wardrop. And um, he has looked at this, this changing situation in economics and in sciences in general, which has been a recent change 
basically since um, 1985, where uh, prior to that uh, 1985, the efficient market hypothesis reigned supreme and concepts such as the law of diminishing marginal returns reigned supreme, concepts such as um, statistical measures that were used to approximate equilibrium conditions reigned supreme. But in 1985, we started to see a lot of physicists, biologists, scientists, mathematicians start getting together to say, hey, those models or those, those um, simple models that um, the uh, economics has basically adopted as, as the, the primary considerations to any uh, form of investment return are actually based on assumptions that are not necessarily all, all the time, that don't occur all the time. And in fact, if you look at um, some of the, the, the new aspects of complex adaptive systems, which are not expressed in conven- conventional traditional terms, such as fractal behaviour, such as um, com- complex adaptive systems, non-stationary conditions, non-linearity, all of these things, which are unfamiliar in the traditional economic lexicon, um, when you start looking at, at complex adaptive adaptive systems from these emergent properties and these aspects of of these systems which are far broader than this narrow domain of predictive certainty around equilibrium, you start realising that these markets are actually nowhere near this state of equilibrium. They're far from equilibrium, but there are periods of time where these predictive models work and there are other periods of time where non-predictive trend-following models or price-following or divergent models work very strongly. So, Where I think the failure in our trend-following communication has gone is in our description of our method to um, investors and allocators, because I think we need to convince them using these these more scientific terms, these more explanatory modern methods of, of dealing with complex adaptive systems to basically improve our case um, towards attracting greater allocations. Because we can demonstrate that when we look at markets in this much more complex way, uh, there's a significant edge to be derived from looking at markets in this much broader landscape of of opportunity. So that's where I think our language language needs to evolve towards a new way of describing our trend-following case. And we've seen this, this growth in this use of the term outlier, which is great. I think we need to also use the term non-linearity a lot more. We need to talk in terms of um, the law of um, increasing returns, which is in situations of positive feedback, which causes these massive um, trending environments where behaviour suddenly becomes uh, very similar amongst all participants and you get this this, um, elastic extension or volatility expansion of our trending environments. These are all terms now we need to really sort of introduce into the community to make them aware that there's another way to see how these these markets operate. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting, and I agree with a lot of what you said. And, you know, as as Mark was pointing out, um, maybe we, as as people who have been doing this for, for a long time, to some extent are talking a slightly different language than the people who are now making the allocations who are perhaps younger in their career and who... A lot of them, you know, have read the same books, uh, and 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 therefore some of those firms who started to adopt that terminology at an earlier stage kind of benefited from that. But I do really like your idea of 
of saying, well, let's let's then try and take it one step further and maybe introduce even the next level of of terms to discuss what trend following is and and what it can do and and so on and so forth. And interestingly enough, this first topic we're going to talk about today actually is a term that I would say 10 years ago we didn't talk about at all. What I noticed was around that time, and maybe even a little bit later, I, I did notice it around seven years ago for sure, because one of my first guests on the podcast, he started talking about it. Um, now he's a short-term manager, and therefore, to some extent, it can be more relevant in some ways, you could say. We're probably going to get into that, you know, the relevance of this term depending on time frame. But they started talking about this term, and um, I think they've been very successful in converting this narrative into actually raising capital, because it might sit really well with what big institutional investors are looking for when they try to make their more kind of maybe scientific decisions as to what they should do with the portfolio. And so to reveal what the term is that we are going to talk about, it's skew. Something that um, I think a lot of people probably have heard. Not sure everybody uh, fully understands what it is. So that's what you're going to reveal for us today, Richard. I can't wait for that, of course. And I'll see if I can... um, put in a, a few uh, semi-professional questions along the way. Of course, I've read the uh, the stuff that you've written about this, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting point, and I'm excited to find out where you're going to take this today, um, because I do see that term pop up more and more in the, uh, in the narrative. So um, why don't you just um, start, and uh, we'll see where we go on, on um, talking about skew and 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 this kind of uh, lopsidedness of returns, so to speak. Okay, Neil. So when we refer to skew, we're referring to the, the, the degree of asymmetry observed in a probability distribution. And the way we, we describe this is we compare and contrast skew, a skewed distribution, to what we refer to as a normal distribution. So as you're familiar, uh, or most, most people are familiar with, a normal distribution is um, is a distribution of, of of data that has a single mean and a, a standard deviation, and it plots traditionally as a bell curve. Right. So you you find that um, when you're about one standard deviation away from that mean, you're encompassing about sixty eight percent of the data, and so on and so so forth. Two standard deviations, I think it's about ninety five percent of the data, etc. So as you, you extend in standard deviations away from that mean, you find that the frequency of the, that data in that distribution basically asymptotically declines as defined by this bell curve. Sure. So when we're talking about skewness, we're talking about how it is asymmetrically orientated in relation to that normal distribution. And when we refer to a data distribution. Skewness is very important to us trend followers because in our particular world or our domain that we are targeting these outliers or hunting for these outliers, this particular market condition that we are exploiting is, is not the, the normal traditional market environment. It is an extreme environment that is often uh, termed uh, a fat-tailed environment. So within this particular market environment, we find that 
these distributions of data from uh, when extracted from these fat-tailed environments certainly are not normally distributed. They're much more complex than what a simple normal distribution implies. And with this normal distribution, there are really just two broad characteristics that define a normal distribution, and that is its mean and its skewness. But in these fat-tailed environments, we might have multiple means and multiple standard deviations associated with multiple means. And the overall distribution and the shape of the distribution becomes incredibly complex. So this skewness that we're talking about is important because it defines basically in terms of, of the market data or particularly in terms of our trade history, it defines where most of our results are found and where extreme results are found. Does that make sense so far? It makes sense. And actually, I heard a, a description of it where it, it talks about skewness refers to the tendency of returns to be distributed in a somewhat lopsided manner, which I think is a good way of, of thinking about it. And of course, then you can have either positive or negative skewness. I'm sure you'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, makes perfect sense. Yes. Yeah, so look, the problem is that um, if we assume everything is a simple normal distribution, that can lead to significant problems in a lot of, of traditional finance methods, such as valuation methods. We assume that uh, prices adopt a, a normal distribution. They don't in reality. Um, if if the, the distribution is different to that normal distribution, it can create major pricing um, issues in relation to those assets. So skewness is important because it's starting to infer that um, in these complex adaptive systems, uh, things in reality are a bit more complicated than what an academic or, or a simple sort of theoretical model such as a normal distribution would imply. Now, skewness is important to us because uh, in, uh, in our trend-following world, we have these positively skewed systems, which means that the majority of trade results are located around that mean or that central distribution point. However, what we find is that we cut our losses short at all times, which means that our trade distribution never goes to the left-hand side of the distribution of returns. Uh, we keep it close to that, that mean point because we're always cutting losses short. But we leave our, uh, let our profits run, which means that with this open-ended profit potential, we can get these highly distorted um, distributions with positive skew, where some of these massive outliers we can have many orders of magnitude of positive return. And it is so far departed from a normal distribution, it's quite incredible. Now, as trend followers, when we examine our trade history, as, as you and I are aware, and uh, most of our trend following folk, when we look at our trade performance, when using a histogram, we find that approximately 5 to 10% of our trades are what actually constitute the profits of our system. Right. The rest of those trades that focus around that mean, the bulk of our trades, are actually what's necessary to just break even, basically. The wins and losses are fairly linear in nature, minus ones, plus ones, minus ones, plus ones. However, when you get to these extreme events of, of plus 20 and plus 15, that's where we get this massive tail exposure or this positive tail exposure, which is very beneficial for our trend-following cause. But um, other forms of method, frequently predictive methods, which narrowly assume that market conditions are stationary and here to stay, they assume a more normal distribution when in reality their distributions have negative skew. 
And you see this in their trade performance, because when you look at skew, we could use a complicated formula to calculate what skew is, but the, 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 probably the easiest way to understand it is the size of your average losses and the size of your average wins. What you find is that uh, positively skewed systems have very small losses and the occasional large win. So therefore, their average losses are small in dollar terms and their average wins are large in dollar terms. But negatively skewed systems is the converse of that. They've got many small wins in dollar terms, but occasional large losses in dollar terms. Does that make sense so far? It makes sense, and 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 in a sense, a good example of these things that I know you also uh, use in terms of the terms. And and again, we can go back and talk about newer terms that has been introduced in the last decade. But that is, of course, convergent and divergent strategies, and where the convergent strategies are, are, you know, hoping for stability to continue, and therefore they have a lot of their returns centered around the mean. And then, unfortunately, from time to time, they get this big surprise and they have the big outlier but it's to the wrong side of the uh, of the mean so to speak and therefore they have this negative skew exactly yeah and and vice versa for far and, and and a good example of that in practice frankly is is the good old long-term capital example where everybody was so impressed about their stable return profile and it did last for quite a quite a few years but then all of a sudden once things got a little bit out of the ordinary, which we know they will all the time, it's just a matter of when, we saw that it basically blew up because they weren't prepared for it in terms of their risk management or their the way they were handling things. Yes. And look, the, the important thing, we'll use long-term capital management as a really good example because many are familiar okay. with that spectacular, uh, the, the ascent and then the spectacular fall of long-term capital management. But when you look at uh, long-term capital management's performance before the the crash occurred with them, Mm -hmm. you will have noted that their systems had negative skew. Uh, Many, 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 many small wins, only occasional very large losses. Now, at that time that markets were predictable, they they were able to absorb those those occasional large losses. And this was during a, a predictable market regime which uh, that they developed these incredibly complicated models that had exactly identified the thresholds from which within they could operate. And they assumed that market conditions would stay that way, that stay stationary within that context, which was their demise. Because when markets suddenly turned unfavorable, got outside of those thresholds, became very uncertain, suddenly they found that that, that single signature of that occasional large loss turned into multiple large losses in a row. And suddenly we saw this this collective large losses catapult them towards risk of ruin. Now, this is the risk of negative skew that lies in convergent systems, and their models were convergent. Now, positive skew, on the other hand, is a total antithesis. You've got to flip the mindset and and see that, uh, all right, we're not going to be hit by these major risk events because we cut losses short all the time but we are going to be the beneficiaries of these incredibly favourable positive events only occasionally. But these these positive favourable events are so large in magnitude in relation to these linear linear losses that we incur that they pay many times over all of those losses. So when we look at our trade distribution, 5% and 10%, we can see why that accounts for all of our profit potential. So skew is really important, not really in normal market conditions, because uh, it just signifies where the risk lies. In other words, where the tail of that distribution extends, the direction in which it extends tells you where the risk lies. So 
For a negative skewed system, you see that most of the results are around the mean, but there's this occasional very skinny tail that extends off to the far left. That direction to the left shows that if conditions turn unfavorable, bang, 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 with these very large losses. But on the other hand, positively skewed systems, the direction of the tail goes to the right towards beneficial profit land for us trend followers. So when market conditions go into these, these regimes where what we refer to as power laws apply, and, and just to talk in terms of power laws just quickly to give um, people an understanding sure. of what, what we mean. But when we talk about power laws, we are talking about um, non-linear laws. In other words, we're talking about laws where uh, which create these exponential moves of significant magnitude. So to understand how they occur, we need to understand that price uh, in these zones of fatal behaviour isn't sort of independent in nature. One price point and the next price point is not independent. What this means is that price at uh, a certain time interval is correlated with price at another time interval. So what we find under a power level regime is that a change in one variable influences the change of another variable. So you can see how these exponential accelerated curves occur when you get into this environment where power laws apply. Now, this is particularly important in, in areas of uncertainty in these fat-tailed regimes, which are highly chaotic, highly non-predictable, but with our models that cut loss short their profits run, provided we orientate them in a way that um, beneficially exploits these um, power laws or these fat-tailed events, and cuts these losses short at all times so we never get to these negative non-linear events, this is our whole sort of raison d'etre for our approach. Our positive skew is really aligned with our central philosophy of cutting losses short, letting profits run. So that pretty well explains skew. And the only other thing I need to add here is that you've got to be careful when using skew to compare against different system strategies and portfolios because how you um, consolidate that skew, for instance, um, when we talk about a, uh, a histogram of trade results, we're talking about uh, the total number of trade results and how they are distributed on a graph. When we talk about a daily performance return, we're looking at all of the trades that occur in a single day and how they consolidate in a day. And when we're talking about a monthly consolidation of trade results, we're talking about all of the results in a particular month. And because our trend-following systems, we tend to have 40% win rate, so more losses than wins, but those losses are linear in nature. We can get a sequence of a lot of minus ones, minus ones, minus ones. And in a monthly scenario, when we add up all of those minus ones, that collectively adds up to about minus 20, say, for example. And when we compare that to the outliers in our series, which tend to stay constant because we don't have too many occurring and they occur infrequently. So in a month, uh, there might only be one outlier or might be no outliers. Uh, then we're comparing, say, minus 20 against, say, plus 20. And there's a big um, asymmetry in that, that range between minus 20 and plus 20. So the skew is higher, higher when you're calculating it in a, a monthly record. But on a trade-by-trade -trade basis, the skew is lower because you're only looking at the difference between the minus ones, the minus ones, and the minus ones against the plus 20 outlier. So does that make sense? It does. I want to unpack it a little bit. I think it, this is a, very important because I think it spills over in other terms that is being thrown around. Let me start with a simple one, then I might have something that might be a little bit more uh, complex. 
But I think what you're what you're saying is essentially the reason why these things tend to occur is also that we have these um, events which is usually surrounded around crises and they often lead to these fat tails. And if you're on the wrong side of that, that can either be catastrophic or if you're a trend follower and and you're following the system, that can be the the outlier we're looking for. And this is also why, for me at least, it kind of makes sense that people start talking about us or our strategies as this crisis alpha strategy because often these things tend to occur around crises like we saw in 2020 with COVID and so on and so forth. Now, I'm, I'm happy to hear your view on that, but I just want to add one thing. The only thing I feel that, and I mentioned this before, and that is the only thing I feel is that maybe the term crisis alpha has been misunderstood or misused to some extent because I feel often that people expect trend followers to always make money when there's a crisis, which we simply cannot guarantee. It very much depends on how the crisis play out and how long it is and so on and so forth. And the other misinterpretation, uh, I think, of the term is that I think sometimes people think, oh, what the trend followers, they need a crisis to make money, which is also not the case. We can make money in years where the S&P is doing great, like in 2019, not a problem. So those, I think, if we want to expand, skew maybe a little bit uh, into kind of other terms, for me, those are the terms that comes to mind when I hear it, where if you dig a little bit deeper, they're certainly related to some of this. Yes, it it is related. I, I, I think positive skew is related to exactly what you're talking about. So Let's talk about crisis alpha. So I actually believe that trend following does offer crisis alpha. However, what I don't believe is that it's necessarily anti-correlated to equities. So what I'm saying here is that when market conditions get extreme and we get these market crisis events that cascade across different markets, you know, in 2008, um, as a classic example, and in March 2020, we find that all the systems, are, all the markets are fairly highly correlated. We get this domino effect occurring across the markets as maybe the equities fall and the commodities fall, etc. This is what I call crisis alpha in that if these, these periods of crisis extend significantly, they are the perfect situations for our trend-following models to make hay while the sun shines because our models themselves manage risk in, in their design, which cut losses short, let profits run. So if our models are quickly sort of able to sort of enter these, these adverse crisis events and those, those events continue for extended periods of time, we can do incredibly well because we also trade correlated markets. That, um, so um, we, we are the beneficiaries of this massive crisis alpha situation. However, it's not necessarily the case that uh, we can rely on the fact that we are always anti-correlated to equities. So in some times, trend followers are, are positively correlated to equities, and other times they're not. So we're, we're uncorrelated, we're not anti-correlated. So that's where the guarantee of crisis alpha, when, when expressed in terms of, will it save my equity portfolio if I invest in trend following? Well, that's not necessarily the case. However, uh, for trend followers who invest, say, 100% of their monies in trend following, you can be pretty well, I, well, I'm pretty happy that I do have this crisis alpha protection because I'm not offsetting it against any other investment. I'm dealing 100% trend following. Now, uh, this doesn't mean 
crises have to occur across markets or a major event across markets. We can get crises occurring in individual markets, and I see this all the time. For instance, um, when you compare Brent and crude, even though they have very highly correlated relationships with each other, in March 2020, where we found, I think it was a super contango we found in crude, we weren't seeing the same effects in Brent. And so we had this outlier occurring in um, crude, which wasn't reflected in the performance of Brent. So whilst the markets are extremely correlated, we can find that individual markets at times differ um, and have these crisis events occurring because of some particular reason. We can never nail down what that reason is. It might be a particular futures market that a cat runs over a keyboard and suddenly that sends off millions of sell transactions and the market suddenly goes through this this huge, huge blip. Or it might be the Swiss dollar collapse uh, in... uh, or the Swiss Swiss dollar DPEG, not collapse, because it was the US and all currencies associated with the Swiss that went the wrong way. <laughs> if I have to correct, as, as someone living in Switzerland, if I had to just correct you a little bit, it was actually the decoupling of the Swiss to the euro, not so much the That's dollar. right. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that event, that was pretty well restricted to uh, these Forex markets that were related to sure. um, the, the Swissy. So, as this infers, uh, I, I think that This positive skew gives us this ability to navigate these uncertain market regimes where these power laws apply. But we're not in the game of trading these normal market conditions. We want to avoid that. So in this area where, you know, these predictive methods tend to specialise, we want to keep clear of that regime because we're specialists for this uncertainty. And we're specialists when when these tails, this tail behaviour occurs and markets get exotic Yes, yes, we are. But but again, I, I, I just want to caution and not, I'm not saying that this is what you meant. But when I hear that, that this year, we're specialists for this uncertainty, I also just want to make make the case that we don't need crisis, we don't need too much uncertainty to make money, we just need trends and trends do occur when, when things are relatively calm, as we've seen during this last bull market, for sure, not every year, of course, but there certainly has been periods where Everything has been hunky-dory and trend followers have made money. So that's one thing I just wanted to say. I've got a couple of more things that I wanted to pick your brain about about since you are um, you know, deep into uh, all of this. Before I go into the next topic on skew, I just want to see whether you're able to talk a little bit about how this term maybe relates to other terms that people also swing around in this new world, like kurtosis, like convexity, which again is related, but maybe doesn't have exactly the same meaning. So can you talk a little bit about how that fits in, and and also maybe what you think is more relevant, more important for investors uh, to to focus on. Well, the skewness, as we've discussed, really talks about uh, the skewness of our trade distribution of returns. But kurtosis is very useful in assessing market data itself, as opposed to the trade distribution of returns. So, in the market data. Um, we, we find that uh, when we have, uh, it, once again, this is another uh, measure of the shape of a distribution as opposed to how it deviates from a normal distribution. So when we're talking about kurtosis, 
we're talking about um, the peakness, the peakedness of the distribution. Now, a lot of people think, oh, it's about the peakedness, but in reality, what it actually is relating to is the, the outliers that exist in a series. So it actually refers to the tail properties of the distribution, even though uh, it, it visually creates this peaked distribution. So when we have high kurtosis, so what, what they do is they say a normal distribution has a kurtosis of three. Okay. So when we talk about a fat-tailed environment, we see that the kurtosis is greater than three. That's what they refer to. I think they refer to it as a leptokurtic distribution, a big mouthful of term there, but it means that we've got these sharp peaks that extend above the normal distribution, but we've got these fat tails that extend outside of the distribution. So the nature of the distribution itself uh, is what they call leptokurtic. Now, that is relevant for market data over a very long history. When, when, for instance, I sample all my commodities, all my Forex, and I look at the market data itself, I find that all has this leptokurtic property, which gives me hope because it's telling me that outliers exist in the series to give these tails. And that tells me that all of those markets are valid for trading. So that's wonderful for me. Every time I see a leptokurtic distribution, um, thumbs up, I'm trading that market. But when I see a platykurtic distribution, so to understand that again, a normal distribution with a kurtosis of three is described as a mesokurtic distribution, all of these terms. But a, a distribution that has a lower peak than the mesokurtic distribution is called a platykurtic distribution. And that shows a thin-tailed environment or an absence of tails which is less than uh, the, the, the extremes that occur in a normal distribution. So that platykurtic distribution is the distribution that predictive traders want to target. In other words, they don't want to um, experience the adverse risk of these tail events, but they want to experience the bounty that's associated with this predictability in the distribution because uh, of the shape of the distribution, which is centred around this mean. It's very close. All, all the distribution of a, of a platykurtic distribution is close to the mean, and that's exactly where the predictive trader wants to target. So you can see that our different philosophies, convergent versus divergent, are actually targeting different distributions in the market data. So that's kurtosis. And that's important. Fantastic. Um, it is. So... Now, in relation to what was the other one? Uh, convexity. You're well, referring to convexity. Yes, yes, yes. I just want to. I just want to share with uh, with the audience because you and I, of course, we can see each other. That I've never seen anyone so enthusiastic when I mentioned the word ketosis, <laughs> which is just fantastic, right? So I wish I could share this, but I'm sure you can hear it in Richard's voice talking about all of these ketosis. <laughs> so I can't wait what's going to happen now that I'm going to use the word convexity. All right. Take it away, Rich. So convexity. Now, this is this is talking about the, the price extensions that exist in a price series. So what we're talking about here is nonlinearity, and we're, we're looking at it in terms of almost like a volatility stretch. So if you can imagine, when when we say that trend followers have convexity, what we're saying is we are capitalizing on the, the convex nature of returns to the left and right, uh, which gives this, this convexity smile uh, in our distribution. Now, this convexity smile is because uh, as we step out um, from the mean of our distribution of results, 
we find that there is some volatility expansion which is creating this curve in the smile. So this is what this convexity is referring to. And most of our, our trend-following models have, have a degree of convexity. And I think it was um, Alex Grayson and, and, and Katie Kaminsky in their great book which described this, this yeah. uh, uh, the smile, this convexity smile. The CTA smile. A CTA smile, which is this, this uh, dealing with convexity. So what this means is that um, we are particularly looking for the market to change regimes from where it's a, a linear market, uh, results are pretty average and standard, minus ones, plus ones, et cetera. And we start getting this stretch in the data where they go two, three, four. Now, when the VIX index takes off, we get this volatility expansion. This is, this is what creates this convexity profile. And this is what we're trying to target uh, because our edge is actually arising from the non-linear nature of these price extensions as opposed to the, the linear nature of normal market data. Now I want to go back to skew because so what I've seen happening is that and it's, you know, it's not a criticism of, it, of anyone. It's just an observation. But one of the arguments, let's put it that way, that has been put forward, for example, towards people should be investing more into the short-term trend-following, I call them short-term trend-following strategies, but they may not be really trend-following. Let's just call them short-term strategies as opposed to longer-term trend-following strategies, is that they can show charts based on monthly returns that show that longer-term trend-following strategies have less positive skew compared to what they used to have, whilst shorter-term strategies have kind of remained more positively skewed. And so the argument they, they put forward is, well, hang on, you should have trend-following because of their positive skew, but in reality, in the last four or five years, that argument has been weakened. Can you talk about, and I, I mean, this is obviously you and I, we haven't rehearsed these questions, so so if you can't, that's fine, but do, do you know what they're trying to say, but why it may not be relevant, in my opinion, to compare short-term strategies with longer-term strategies using this argument alone, at least? Well, what, what this argument is dealing with, these short-term models offering this, this greater positive convexity than the longer-term models. You had a great speaker on your show from Quest um, who talked about this as well. That Quest focus on shorter-term trend-following models. And what that is doing is it's looking at uh, the, getting the V in this positive convexity. So with the longer-term models, we've, we've got a more shallow convexity profile than what the short-term models um, produce, which is this more sort of a V convexity in, kind of in the models. Kind of a strangle-type look. That's right. They're, they're sort of, uh, it's more like an options play uh, with, with, right. a, with, a, with a straddle. So what, what that is, what, what, what they believe that's um, due to is that when we get these volatility expansions occurring, they're, they're fairly short-term in nature. So we notice this in the markets as well, you know, we suddenly get this volatility spike. And so these short-term models are quick to capitalise on that uh, volatility spike because of their short-term nature. 
But um, by the time that the medium term and the longer term models start getting onto that volatility spike, that, that spike, uh, which is the acceleration in that volatility expansion, the acceleration slows down. Now, yep, that's all very fine and good. But where I have the problems with applying short-term trend-following models is that, um, yes, there are these short-term volatility expansions that offer this V-shaped um, convexity. However, when you play in that short-term space, by far the majority of the time, however, you're being beaten to death with whipsaws and these many small losses. So when you accumulate these many whipsaws and many small losses applied to playing in this short-term environment, waiting for these volatility spikes, any benefit you get from that volatility spike is soon outweighed by the large number of losses and whipsaws that occur in that area. So that's where I think we've got to sacrifice a bit of that V-shape in our convexity by going out to these medium-term to longer-term models to get away from the noise and those whipsaws that really dilute the impact of our outliers. I would say that um, I agree with what you say. I think there are very few, uh, certainly uh, Nicole being one of them, but there are very few managers who actually think are, are doing a great job at capturing you know, short-term momentum. I wouldn't necessarily call it trend-following because in my view, definition of trend-following is that markets have to, to some extent, move a little bit against you before you get out. They've got and to breathe I think a, bit. a lot of the short, I think a lot of the short-term uh, managers today, they tend to use time stops instead, meaning that they 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 have an idea of how long a volatility expansion expansion tends to last. So they get into the trade, but they know after three days or four days that's usually enough and therefore they get out. So it's not really trend following. I don't think it's more trying, momentum. It's momentum. And I don't think they're trying to sell themselves as short-term trend followers. I mean, they may have some trend following strategies in their portfolios, but that would be in addition to this short-term momentum expansion type model. So of course you could say, and I I, I, I true, truly believe that is, that is correct, that if you're putting together a portfolio of, of managers of which something that you and I have been working on, but in a slightly different context. But I do think that there is a, a claim to be had where you say, well, I need a little bit of this short term because we know trend follow is going to suffer usually when, when the crisis begins. We saw that in February of last year. We saw that, uh, you know, in 2007, the first couple of months of the quote-unquote crisis were really horrible for trend follows because we had to reposition ourselves, so to speak, but then as the crisis progress, as you rightly say, trend followers tend to be the ones who by far benefit the most or are able to capture the most of, of, of this crisis alpha, if we stay in that term. So, yeah, I think there's, a, there's room for both uh, types of strategies. This is also why I think some of the volatility strategies, frankly, are quite interesting because many of them can move much quicker than, um, than trend following can. And the other thing that reminds me, because I think a lot of people, since we talk about crisis alpha, they they have this, um, you know, they have seen the re results of how well trend followers can do during a crisis. Um, but I'm not so sure people realize that actually when you break down the portfolio of a trend follower during a crisis, like last year, we had significant, significant losses in, in equities. In the equity sector of our portfolio, that's where we lost all the money. 
and what made it a profitable period for some trend followers at least was all the other stuff that we have in the portfolio. And this is, of course, why we end up always going back to this point about being fully diversified, not knowing what you know where the next trend is going to be and all of that good stuff. So that is another um, kind of counterintuitive aspect <laughs> when you think about trend following doing well during a crisis. You think, well, it must be because you're getting short equities. No, no, no. Usually that's where all the losses occur, at least for the first uh, few weeks or months. And, and then we finally get short equities. And, and that's usually at least in the last few years when equities have kind of find their found their footing again and start to uh, to to reverse and and hits us twice. So when you look at the attributions of many trend following systems today for the last 10 15 years equities have not been a great contributor. It's been a lot of other things in the portfolio. But it's true to our belief in our philosophy that um, knowing what you don't know that's really you know what you have to live by and that's why we we design our portfolios and our systems the way we do. Do you want to add something? I know we had something else lined up for today. I don't know how much we can dive into it today. Maybe we want to talk a little bit about something which kind of relates to um, what you uh, spoke about before. And that's just maybe path dependency. And the reason I mentioned that is because this is actually quite important in understanding a lot of the stuff that goes on in portfolios and in returns and in price action uh, in general, that you can't ignore how it occurred, so to speak. And um, we'll probably dive into it much deeper next uh, next time. But even if, I guess the, the, the spoiler alert is, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, but the spoiler alert is that even if you had three different assets, let's just call them that, or strategies, that after a period of time end up at the same point, the way they got there, whether they had their their best returns in the beginning of the period or towards the end of the period, or whether it was pretty much steady as we go all along, makes a huge difference in terms of how the, so to speak, accumulated return turns out when you see it as an equity curve like we would do. Give us a little bit of a spoiler alert, Rich. You're totally right, Neil. So as we get, we're digging deep into our trend-following yes. process. And what we actually find as we dig deeper and deeper into this layer is that the systems we deploy, our trend-following systems, are not the real things that give us our secret source. What is the, the what gives us our secret source is this miracle of compounding. So, you know, I, I think Einstein referred to it as the eighth wonder of the world. Well, supposedly he was meant to have said that. I, I don't think he did, but I think Benjamin Franklin had a, had a better quote for, for what it was, which was, uh, uh, it said, money makes money, and the money that money makes makes money. That's basically compounding. <laughs> and okay. So, so what, it, what it's saying is that in this real world that we exist in, we can't talk in terms of returns in, in the context of this thing we call arithmetic returns, which most of us are useful. You know, we might have um, returns each year for 10 years, and the way we get the arithmetic mean of that return is to add them all up together and divide by 10. That gives us our arithmetic mean. Now, that, that uh, does not pay tribute to the path dependency that we're seeking because path dependency is a very important contact, uh, uh, context to understand when you're looking at what is the optimal path to deliver compounded wealth in the long term. 
So, you know, just as, as a quick um, intro to this before we discuss it next week. Sure, um, sure. I suppose... Next, yep. probably next month, Rich. Since next week it'll be, it'll be Rob returning it'll be to the Rob. podcast. I know <laughs> uh, he's probably going to make me wash my mouth out with soap because he's very, very, very up with all of these statistics. But uh, compounding uh, basically is is a principle that um, looks at the impact of of um, your equity and how um, returns influence that equity and the path of that equity. Uh, when we have big drawdowns, detracts from compounded wealth. But when we have these big, what I call step-ups or these positive beneficial outliers, that significantly compounds our net wealth over the long term. And it's this path that it takes, the progression of outliers versus drawdowns, this wiggly path that we take actually has a fundamental role in giving us this optimal path for this net wealth. So you only experience this when you've got a very long-term track record and nearly all alternative methods that I know of, such as these convergent methodologies, they have a very short-term track record. So they're never in the game to understand what compounding wealth is all about. But for trend followers that have got a 30, 40, 50-year track record, you soon start seeing what does the heavy lifting of net wealth over the long term and it's this compounded effect. Uh, and the path that um, that the um, investment returns take over the course of that long time is critical for this compounding. Another word for it is this geometric mean. That's we'll get into that next episode. We'll get into that. And 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 another way to kind of visualize this, which is um, something that um, I don't think we talk much about really, but but we well we do it in in different ways because we always talk about how positively trend following can influence an overall portfolio, right? There's lots of papers written on that. But actually what it does, and we we know that people love these uh, 8% equity strategies, but they do have their 50 or 60% drawdown from time to time. But, but the magic of what happens when you include a trend following strategy uh, into that is it's this stabilizing effect we have on the combined equity curve because that allows the compounding to take place at a much higher level all the time. And that's why when you look at, say, the S&P 500 compounded return and you look at, say, Dunn's compounded return, if you add them together 50-50, you don't just get the average of the two. You get something that is way above any of the two. And that's the beauty. And it's so powerful when you see it visually. I'm not so sure we've done a, you know, a great job at explaining that because I think if people really understood it, they would say, yeah, I definitely need these stabilizers in my portfolios. It makes total sense. So I'm, I'm already excited about diving into this uh, in a few weeks' time with you, Rich, and get some of your passionate intake into um, the world of... Um, of compounding, as you rightly say, as we continue to dig deeper into this wonderful world of trend following. So I think with that, the skew thing, I think we've done we've done enough damage for today. Uh, people might still be, their heads might still be spinning from, from all of that, but I hope it was useful. What also seems to be useful so far this month is the performance of trend followers actually, and or CTAs in general. Beta 50 index is up 58 basis points as of Thursday. I think Friday was a positive day in general, so I think it'll be uh, even better when you see the numbers uh, as of Friday. It's up 8.3% for the year, so doing pretty well. 
The broader index, the CTA index, the SOCGEN CTA index, is actually uh, down a little bit, uh, 12 basis points as of Thursday night, and up not quite as much for the year, 6.37% so far. Maybe that's because they could be including some of the shorter-term managers, which have not done as well as as the longer-term trend followers. SOCGEN trend index up 73 basis points as of Thursday, up 9.3% for the year clearly benefiting from some of these trends, which I actually think to some degree are some of these newer markets, whether they're Chinese or whether they're European electricity and and net gas contracts. But there's certainly been some extreme moves in in a small sub, subset, I should say, of the markets. Um, so clearly some people are benefiting from that. And also, as, as indicated, the SOCGEN's short-term traders index uh, is struggling a bit now, down 105 for the month. And um, and down one almost one percent for the year, which of course is kind of interesting because you often expect on and you hear them promote their ability to navigate better some of these shorter term moves that we've seen, and we've seen them a few times this year in July and now in September, like this week. So um, again, shows the difference between the different strategies. I mentioned already that the trend barometer has moved up um, to 43 after a period of, of being pretty low over the summer. So maybe that's a good sign as we head into Q4. By the way, Q4, I always in my head think that that's usually the best year or the best quarter of the year. I'm sure it's not statistically correct or significant, but it always seems like something interesting can happen in the fourth quarter. So we'll see if that pans out this year. The, uh, the MSCI World Index, for a change, it's down for the month, 1.2%, up 15.3% still for the year. And the World Government Bond Index, also down for this uh, month, with bond prices selling off. Now, to me, this is interesting. I'm not saying this is the beginning of something, but this is just one of those things that have seemed to work so well for the last 20, 30 years, this non-correlation between equities and bonds and I personally believe that at some point that's going to change and we're going to go back to the usual long-term correlation uh, between the two. And that's unfortunately positive for those investors who rely on any kind of protection that may not be there in the future. Not saying it's going to happen next week or next month. I'm just saying that it's one of those things that I would worry about. And I would also ensure that you had something in your portfolio that could offset or, or be that protector which Rich and I, by the way, are working on and will soon publish something where you can actually replace the whole 40% of your 60-40 portfolio away from bonds and into a portfolio of CTAs and actually get a better result. But we'll leave that for another day. We're not quite there yet. I think on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up this conversation. As mentioned in the beginning, we would be so grateful if you would share with your friends, the link toptradersonplot.com forward slash share so we can get even more people interested and involved in the conversation. As also mentioned, next week, Rob is back from his extended summer holiday, I may say. So he will surely be well rested and ready to tackle all the questions from uh, our community. Uh, you can, of course, email them to info at toptradersonplot.com and we'll do our very best to get them out to you. And... Um, I think that's pretty much it for me and Rich. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 
Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.